0: Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 10, verse verse 30, all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism, which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we too thank you that you have granted to us repentance to life. We praise you, Father, that you sent someone to us that we might hear the gospel and receive it and and become your children and we have your Holy Spirit within us and for that we thank you and praise you. Father, we pray for Tom as he brings the word to us. We pray that you would speak to him and that we would receive your word and be faithful and obedient to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
1: Good morning. In last week's passage, uh, through a, a vivid and very surprising vision that was repeated three times, the Holy Spirit made it very clear to Peter that he must, as he put it, no longer call any man unholy or unclean. Peter understood that that included Gentiles who ate things that had always been forbidden to Jews, and God had used uh, He had used a vision that was all about food to make a point that was all about people. In this morning's passage, uh, God shows Peter the full impact of that revelation on the scope and reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then then God uses. Peter to pass that, that awareness, that new understanding about the scope and reach of the gospel, to his uh, other Jewish Christian associates in Jerusalem. This passage marks one of the greatest turning points in all of human history and one of the greatest truths ever revealed by God to human beings. This is one of the most stunning things that ever happened to the Jewish community, uh, specifically to believing Jews. And we'll talk a little bit about that. We've already discussed how how unexpected all this was a little bit last week, but it's gonna get even more unexpected as we proceed. Now, what we saw last time, of course, is that immediately after the the third and final round of Peter's vision that he had here in Joppa, several men were knocking at his gate uh, of the house he was staying at and he answered the gate and there were the men who were soldiers who came from uh, a military officer named Cornelius who was in Caesarea. Uh, These men said that they were there to fetch Peter and drag him back and bring him back with them from Joppa to talk to Cornelius and Caesarea. And, uh, and then they told him, of course, that, that, uh, that their master had had this, this other dream that had come to him or a vision from an angel who had appeared to Cornelius and told him that these, these soldiers were going to be coming. Uh, before Peter heard the soldiers knock at the gate, the Holy Spirit already told him to accompany these men back to Caesarea. And so, as our passage picks up today, Peter has now arrived in Caesarea. He's at Cornelius' house, and Peter has explained to Cornelius all about this vision that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. And he said, that's the only reason that I came to you uh, without any objection. Now, both Peter and Cornelius knew full well that for Peter, a Jew, to come into the dwelling place of an uncircumcised Gentile and to accept that Gentile's hospitality and therefore to eat that Gentile's food was simply not done. And it was not done because it was forbidden by God himself, according to the law of Moses, at least the food part. Not necessarily the visiting part, but the food part was very clear. Jews were not supposed to eat these foods. Now, that whole division that Peter had 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 just dashed that. It had had completely changed that paradigm. So what Peter was doing at this point was obeying a, a direct command of God that violated, that differed from everything that he had ever known about dietary restrictions and association with Gentiles. Now, we should note that up to this point in Luke's narrative, uh, Peter still does not know exactly uh, what God intends for him to do now that he finds himself in this house with Cornelius and, who has assembled all of his family, and he's assembled a bunch of his friends, and they're all Gentiles, and they're, they're all apparently in a room uh, waiting for something, and Peter's not exactly sure what they're waiting for, and I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, if you've ever been in a situation that, uh, that felt seriously awkward, you know, multiply that about a hundred times, and that's what everybody in this room was probably feeling at this point. At the end of verse 29, Peter comes right in, out and asks the, the, the question that everybody's wondering about. So he says, I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius knows the answer. And we're going to pick up this morning with Cornelius' response to that question. Why am I here? That's what Peter's asking. Why am I here? Cornelius replies by telling Peter about his own personal encounter with the angel of God four days earlier at the same hour of the day. Now, I just want to point out one thing real quickly. He says four days earlier, but if you track through the passage, it's three days back that he had this, this dream. That's significant because Jesus said he was raised on the third day. He, if he was crucified on Friday, then Saturday, Sunday, that's, the, that's, the, second, that's the, that is the second day, right, after the crucifixion. Jews reckon time, they reckon day counts a little differently than we do. They reckon each full day that's involved in the count as a day. And so when, when he says this happened four days ago, he means, okay, we're standing here on this day, it happened not yesterday, not the day before that, it happened the day, it, it, it happened that, that third day, which was four days removed, if you count each whole day. I, went, I didn't handle that very well, but I hope you get the point. <laughs> I hope you get the point. Because, because that's been used by critics to say that, that the Gospels aren't consistent when they say that Jesus was raised on the third day. Well, it's the third day if you're counting the whole days that are involved in the count. Does that sort of make sense? Okay, too much time on that. Now, Cornelius replies by telling Peter about his encounter with the angel the same hour of the day, four days before, and then he says in verse 33, he reveals to Peter the God-ordained purpose for Peter's journey. He says, Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I think it's very interesting that Peter doesn't know why he's there. Apparently, God told him something. Every preacher, of course, loves finding out after he arrives at a meeting that he's the one presenting the sermon. But seriously, any preacher worth paying attention to would have loved to, be, to have been in, in Peter's circumstance here. If you fast forward just a moment to verse 14 of chapter eleven, chapter 11, you find out exactly what this group of people was expecting Peter to talk about when he showed up that day we find there that an angel, the angel that appeared to Cornelius in that very first episode of chapter 10 had told Cornelius that Peter would, quote, speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and, your, and all of your household. So that's what Cornelius was waiting for. He was waiting to hear words by which he would be saved, he and his household. And it doesn't get any better than that. A room full of people who have assembled for the sole purpose of having you tell them how to get saved. Anybody here wouldn't like to do that? Bring it on, Lord. What we find next in this marvelous passage is Peter doing just that. We get a, a front row seat as Peter tells this room full of Gentiles how to be saved. And you might find it a little surprising, but the gospel that he preaches to these Gentiles is very, very much like the gospel that he had been preaching to the Jews in chapter 2 and again in chapter 3. And that's important. His gospel here contains every element of the same gospel message that the Apostle Paul later identifies in 1 Corinthians 15 as that which is of first importance, that essential gospel message that must be believed in order for a person to be saved. That foundational gospel message that is of first importance includes these indispensable parts. Christ died for our sins, and that's actually two things. The first is that Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the long-promised king in the line of David that all the prophets talked about. Okay, so Christ died for our sins. It means he took our place and paid our debt. And then the next point is that he was, he, after he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day. So he died, he was raised from the dead. And then the next point that's very critically important, as important as the others, is that this is according to the scriptures. His death and his resurrection are according to the scriptures. You, I know I've been beaten on this horse ever since we started at, in Acts, but this is so very important. According to scriptures means that it, it, is, it fulfills what the Old Testament prophets foretold. That's what it means. Okay. And that's essential to our gospel. And then the last part is, the last part of the gospel message is, and then he appeared. He appeared to very many people, to the apostles At one point, to more than 500 people. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, as as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, Christ died. Christ died. He was raised from the dead. All of that, his death and his resurrection were foretold by the prophets. And then, after he was raised, he appeared to very many people. That's the essence, that's the essential gospel that's the a message that we, we need to make sure that we're covering adequately. You may not always get to even get more than a, a one or two points of that gospel in a given conversation. You can't always control the conversation, but the goal is to get all that stuff out on the, all those amazing truths out on the table with people that were, that were pointing to Christ. Now here, Peter provides a uh, quite a bit of additional detail that clarifies that most essential message. In verses 34 and 35, he talks about uh, something that was already true of Cornelius and that, that then he realizes, uh, he realizes this applies to both Jews and Gentiles. He says, I most certainly, most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now I want to point out those two verses do not tell us how a person gets saved. They do not tell us how a person is made right with God. You don't get right with God by doing right. Okay. This is this is talking about God preparing the heart of a person. And in this case Cornelius he was giving alms to the Jews. He was praying to the one true God. He wasn't yet circumcised. Um, but God had been working on this man, and he was in the process of repent- what we would call repentance. He was making a Godward turn. And that in itself is a work of God. And Peter's, what Peter is getting at in verses 34 and 35 is simply that when God is going to save somebody... Whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, God produces this Godward turn, uh, and He He reorients the person, and He's not partial in doing that. God doesn't care if it's a Jew or a Gentile, or a slave or a free man, or a male or a female. That's not what determines uh, who receives this gift. All right, I also want to point out there. As I said it's not. It's not the good things that the person does that save him, that's, I, I don't want to just pass by that. This morning, Robert read from Romans 5, 18 and 19, 5, 19, That says, 18 and 19 says, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That is, in other words, to all who trust in Jesus. For as, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It is not many acts of righteousness that save you. It is one act of righteousness that saves you, and that is Jesus' act of obedience to his Father in going to the cross in your place. That's the act of righteousness that saves you. No other, okay? And that's exactly where Peter then goes next, to the person and perfectly completed work of Jesus of Nazareth, the long-promised Christ in the place of sinners like you and me and Cornelius. Cornelius. He says in verses 37 to 8 that this, all of this actually happened in real space, in real time, in a known place at a known time. It happened in Judea, starting from Galilee. It happened after John the Baptist's baptism. He says God anointed J- Jesus, his son, with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's how Jesus did the works that he did. He became as we now are. He emptied himself and he became dependent on the Holy Spirit to empower him to speak and to act to carry out the will of his Father. Jesus never stopped being God, but in taking on humanness and taking on our humanity, he emptied himself of many things uh, that belong to him, that are rightfully his, and he became dependent on the Spirit. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Then Peter declares that he and the apostles were witnesses of all these things in verse 39, and also, of course, witnesses of his death and resurrection. And so then he says, verse 39 and verse 40, that Jesus was crucified, he died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. And then he says, God granted that he should become visible, (laughs) it's interesting wording, He's talking about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And again, he says, we're witnesses of all these things. And then again, just as in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes it clear that we understand that all of this is according to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, verse 43, of him, all the prophets bear witness. All the prophets bear witness. And then he he says that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. He died for our sins. He died because we are condemned unless he dies. Romans 3, verses Nine through twenty eight that whole long passage is all about the fact that we are that there is no one righteous, not one, there is no one who even knows how to seek for God, there is no one who does good, not even one. All of our mouths are closed, we are all standing accountable to God with no defense whatsoever, and it is only by the gift of Jesus Christ's payment in our place. and the the gift of his righteousness covering us, that's the only way that we get to stand in the presence of this perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. We are all disqualified. We are all sinners. In verse 42, Peter adds another little element to his gospel declaration here that we would do well to pay close attention to, especially in this very dark time in which we live. He says... God ordered us to preach and solemnly testify that he, God, has appointed Christ Jesus. He has appointed him judge. He has appointed him judge of the living and the dead. Now, you don't find that in every gospel declaration. It's very much implied in the Pentecost Day declaration through the prophecy of Joel. But here it's explicit. There's a judgment coming. And when it comes, the one in the judge's seat is Jesus. That is one of the great distinctives that will help you smoke out people who say that they they believe in Jesus when they really don't. Listen to John 5, verses 22 through 24. Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That they may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Don't miss that part. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then he says, magnificent verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come under judgment, judgment, but has passed, literally has crossed over out of death into life already. It is by acknowledging that Jesus is the one who will dispense God's judgment on all mankind that we come to rightly honor the Son even as we honor the Father. And that means that those who claim that they worship the same God that we do but who do not confess that they will one day stand before the judgment seat of Jesus and that he is the one who will determine whether they enter the kingdom of God or do not enter the kingdom of God. He is the one who will declare their eternal destiny. He is the judge of all mankind. If they do not acknowledge that, they don't worship the same God that we do because you can't worship someone you don't honor. And I've had conversations with with a few Muslims over this point. They say, oh, we believe in Jesus. We worship the same God you worship. No, you don't. Do you believe that he's the one who will stand, whom you will stand before in judgment? He will determine the destiny of your eternal soul? No, they don't. Then God says, you don't worship him. And that applies to a whole lot of other belief systems, and claims that people make. Beloved, the poured-out blood of Jesus the Savior saves us from Jesus the Judge. He saves us from himself. And that's marvelous news. Without that news, we would be everlasting toast because we have no case to make for ourselves. Dead people have nothing to offer. In a group this size, there are surely some sitting who, here who are still holding on to some dependence on what you can do to earn God's favor. What you can do for Him. And unless you abandon that utterly, and you, you, you simply fall upon His mercy, and you, you trust, you take Him at His word that Jesus is the one who pays the full and eternal debt of your sin, and he alone is the one who grants you entrance into the kingdom of God. His righteousness, not yours. Unless you acknowledge that, you will not be saved, and you are not saved until you do. All right. The real point of this critically important passage is the inclusion of Gentiles in the household of God the spiritual household of God and not just their inclusion but their perfect parity their equality with saved Jews in that household saved people who came to Christ as Jews it doesn't matter where where you came from okay it's all the same it's based on your faith in Jesus if the temple were in the temple worship system Gentiles were permitted if they were proselytes, if they were circumcised, if they kept the law, if they did the sacrifices, if they came to the festivals, if they did all the stuff that Jews do except being physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were allowed into the court of Gentiles in Herod's temple. Okay, The court of the Gentiles wasn't even as close to the presence of God as the court of the women. And and they, they, they were stuck out here, outside this balustrade that, that was the, the, the closest that you could draw near unless you were a priest, right? So this, this uh, prohibition made every Gentile proselyte to, Ju- proselyte to Judaism a second-class Jew. It, it gave him a second-class access to the presence of God. All that went away with Jesus. Um, there was always a, this two-tiered sort of caste system that was associated with uh, with Judaism. All this goes away with Christ. No, no such distinction between Jew and Gentile exists. And I want to read another passage to you. Uh, this is Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven to twenty-two. It's it's got some a few verses too, but please listen. This is written by Paul to Gentile Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus. It's magnificent. Therefore, remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the, in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, you were without, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one, literally who made both one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing law. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments con- contained in ordinances, that in himself, in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are of God's household. Most of the people in this room would have no relationship with God unless this was true. Steve is one of our exceptions. <laughs> and then he says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted, and held, uh, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is the magnificent reality of being a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the same reality whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, by birth. It is the same reality no matter what you used to believe. Having been drawn into perfect union with Jesus and through Jesus with our triune God, we who came from the ranks of Gentiles have been drawn just as near to God as believing Jews and the presence of the holy spirit in us actually makes us god bearers together with believing jews made into one new man in christ that if god dwells in you you can't get any closer than that another passage that you've heard many of you've heard before galatians this is short galatians 3 verses 26 to 28 for you are all sons of god through faith in christ jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46, uh, Luke says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to this message. That whole household of people believed. And it says, all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then... A little later in 1117, Peter says the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to these Gentile saints after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though it doesn't mention belief right in the passage we just read, it mentions it very clearly later. It says that the Spirit came upon them because they believed. It happened after they believed. And that is the same sequence that Paul later declares of the Ephesian saints and of all believers, in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, after you heard the message of truth, of the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as the down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You heard, you believed, and God sealed you with his spirit. That's how it works. Okay? In this case, God provided clear evidence that just as had been true for the apostles at Pentecost, these Gentile believers had already received the real baptism to which the ceremony of baptism points. Before Peter baptized them with water, they had already been baptized with the baptism that matters, that that, that, that one points to. See, the symbol never is never equal to the substance. The symbol's important, it's commanded but it's not the substance. That real baptism is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it belongs to every person who comes to faith in Jesus. Peter and his friends knew that these these Gentiles were new believers and that they belonged to Christ, and they they had been baptized by the Spirit because God provided them some proof through the speaking in tongues. Now, in light of the monumental division between Jews and Gentiles that was being overcome on this day, that audible proof of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was a very gracious provision of God. The Holy Spirit left no guesswork here. Gentiles who trusted in Jesus were now just as fully part of the spiritual household of God as Jews who trusted in Jesus. Luke's narrative of this momentous event concludes in verses 47 to 48 where Peter says, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't miss the fact that Peter ordered, he commanded these new believers who had received the baptism of the Spirit to publicly proclaim that reality through the ceremony of water baptism. No delay whatsoever. Just like in Acts chapter 2. At the end of this, of chapter 10, there's only a very small, there's a small contingent of Jewish saints who know about this astonishing development. And that's the, saint, the Jews that were there with Peter at Cornelius's house. But the grapevine in the Jewish Christian community was apparently about as active as ours is at CBC, And so the first verse of of, uh, chapter 11 tells us that by the time Peter returned to Jerusalem from Caesarea, the Jewish believers throughout Judea had already heard that the Gentiles had also received, that Gentiles had also received the word of God, meaning the gospel. Some of Peter's fellow Jewish believers didn't care for that idea. So as soon as Peter got back to Jerusalem, Luke says that these Jews who were of the circumcision took issue with Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter said, well, I'm glad you pointed that out to me. I didn't realize that. No. Verses 4 through 17 of chapter 11 give us Peter's response to this, this accusation. That's what it is. It's an accusation. He does not deny it in any way. Instead, he explains why he was compelled to do something that Jews had understood that they were forbidden to do for dozens of generations. He rehearses for his Jewish Christian friends the whole sequen- sequence of events that we just saw in chapter 10. And I won't rehearse it again. Okay, And then finally, Peter says to his fellow believing Jewish friends that the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles who were gathered there with Cornelius just as the Spirit had done upon Peter and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And he tells them that when that happened, he, Peter, remembered how Jesus used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. After relating that whole play-by-play to his Jewish Christian associates in chapter 11, verses 1 through through uh, 16, Peter comes to the inevitable conclusion in verse 17. And this is where Peter gets the home run. Last week it was a base hit. Here's the home run. If God therefore gave to them, those Gentiles, the same gift he gave to us, meaning the indwelling Holy Spirit, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's saying, how could I fail to embrace these Gentiles as fellow saints, redeemed by God just as surely as we are, since God himself had declared and demonstrated that fact as clearly as he did with us? And how could I withhold believers' baptism from them? The symbol of their identification with Christ and of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom they received after believing in Jesus, just as happened with us. Case closed. Peter's Jewish friends were convinced. Verse 18 says, when they heard this, they quieted down, they glorified God, and they said, well then, (laughs) God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance unto life. God was turning the hearts of Gentiles just as these same men had watched him over and over turn the hearts of Jews from unbelief to belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of sinners, so that they too would have forgiveness of their sins and eternal life in him and in him alone. That acknowledgement by Peter's Jewish Christian friends at the church in Jerusalem marks one of the greatest turning points in all of human history, and it is one of the greatest truths ever revealed by God to human beings, and it has ramifications and implications for you and me that absolutely pervade our lives, they fill our lives. Jewish believers finally understood that the church, the bride of Christ, would include people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. In Acts 1, Jesus has said to them, you'll be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. You'll go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And he didn't just mean to Jews. He meant to Everybody. Way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families on earth would be blessed. That promised blessing was always about right relationship with God. And Jesus was always the seed through whom that blessing would come. Jesus is that long-promised seed of Abraham who makes every person that God brings into union with him, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. That's Romans eight seventeen. An heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. That's true of every child of God. That's how you and I, who trust in Jesus, became part of the treasured possession of God. No matter what the person's race is, No matter what the person's beliefs have been in the past, no matter how unclean the person has been in the eyes of God before trusting in Jesus, Jesus came to seek and save the lost and we are all, 100% of humanity, desperately and helplessly lost until we are found by Jesus Christ, until he brings us to faith in him. And it doesn't matter who you were before that happened. When that happens, when God brings you to faith, you are part of the spiritual household of God, a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, a holy people set apart to God. This means that there is nobody too unclean, too stained by sin to be washed in the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. If there's someone in your life who has made it clear to you that they can never forgive you of a wrong that you've done to them, if if you've been treated as an outcast by people who are important to you, perhaps even by Christians, if you have become convinced that your sin is too wretched ever to be forgiven, then know this, Jesus died to save sinners every bit as wretched as you and me. The perfect righteousness of God levels levels the playing field for all of us sinners because God doesn't grade on the curve. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. God doesn't grade on the curve. We all fall short of the standard that God requires and we fall short of it by infinite measure. So comparing yourself with anyone else on earth is utterly pointless. Yet though we all stand condemned in the sight of God apart from Jesus, nobody, nobody is too unclean to be washed white as snow by the redeeming blood of Jesus. Nobody. Take him at his word. Trust him his perfect righteousness and in his perfect and complete sacrifice in your place and be saved forever. And he will welcome you into the spiritual household of the living God forever. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you again for this, uh, this magnificent truth and for how Just compellingly and undeniably, you spelled it out for Peter and for Cornelius and for those Gentiles that were with him. And then for all those Jewish believers back in Jerusalem who had trouble swallowing it, you made it undeniable, Father. And it is undeniable for us. Make us your vessels to share the good news of eternal life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone with every human being that you set before us. Father, make us bold. Give us your love for the lost and fill your kingdom with redeemed saints through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.